Hello and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest today is Jonathan Kutub. Jonathan is co-founder of Nonviolence International and of the Palestinian human rights group Al-Haq. A well-known international human rights attorney, he has practiced in the U.S., Palestine, and Israel. He serves on the board of Bethlehem Bible College and is president of the board of Holy Land Trust. He's just been appointed the executive director for Friends of Saville, North America, and he's just published Beyond the Two-State Solution with Nonviolence International. And his book is the subject of our conversation today. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Now, you once argued for a two-state solution. You no longer believe that that is a viable option. Why have you arrived at that conclusion? That is correct. I've worked very hard for a two-state solution. The two-state solution at its roots was dividing Palestine basically uh, into two areas, uh, with Palestinians keeping about 22% of the country. And uh, it was a hard pill for Palestinians to swallow. Uh, But they did. And the entire Arab world and Muslim world was behind that two-state solution. But then the Israeli governments, right and left, Likud and Labour, all of them, systematically undermined that solution. They introduced into that 22% that was supposed to be a Palestinian state about six or 700,000 Jewish settlers living in increasingly broadening areas that were just for Jews. The number of settlements, the location throughout the area, the infrastructure of roads that combined them, the administrative system that was created for them, the psychological integration of those settlements into Israel itself. So they were not living there as West Bankers. Uh, They were living there as fully Israeli with all the social health, social security, uh, uh, subsidies, uh, taxes, laws, uh, police structures that, that were just totally undermined even the possibility of a two-state solution. Uh, I I wrote a little book beyond the two-state solution where I outlined uh, how effective uh, that undermining has been and and, and how the few attempts, uh, the three or four attempts that were made to remove settlers, whether successful or not, were so huge and traumatic as to ensure that you couldn't really do it on any uh, significant scale in the future. Uh, and, and then I said, if that's the case, if all the experts and the pundits realize that the Palestinian state is not going to happen, then we need some new thinking out of the box. Uh, we need to go back to the drawing boards. Uh, this grand compromise of two states can no longer uh, be uh, effective. So is there anything else that suggests itself to people of goodwill who care about Israelis and Palestinians uh, to to advance? And your book offers that new vision, really a confederation within one state 
Can you sketch out your vision and how it could it's, it's It's beyond confederation. It's, it's an attempt to basically radically alter the concept of Palestinian nationalism and the concept of Zionism uh, to somehow incorporate and include the other rather than exclude it, delegitimize it, demonize it, disenfranchise it, or even physically eliminate it. That can no longer happen. So can the two live together? Is it possible to think uh, of a hybrid solution that is uh, fully Jewish and fully Arab at the same time? That, that addresses the needs and the fears and the history of both sides uh, and gives them basically everything they want except for exclusivity, except for denial of the other. Uh, can we build in uh, structures and laws and constitutions and institutions uh, that uh, can uh, resist any demographic change where the rights of each party are guaranteed, regardless of who has 51% of the population. Because in, in, in my view, a genuine democracy is not built just on elections with 51% denying and oppressing uh, the minorities or the individual for that matter. But let's look at some of the core issues here because there's things like the right of return or Jerusalem. How does that work? How do you sort through that? Easily. Right of return, I think, is, an, is, is a basic requirement for Zionist Jews. But it's also a requirement for Palestinian Arabs. And the only reason that, that you would deny the right of return is because of demographic fears. So if I solve the demographic problem, if I ensure your rights, regardless of who has uh, more individuals, then I don't have to worry about every Palestinian baby that's born and every uh, Jew or Palestinian Arab who returns or immigrates into the country because the rights are basically guaranteed regardless of uh, the numbers involved. It recognizes that both communities have a substantial stake in the country, even if they fall below 50% or 40% or whatever. And Jerusalem? Jerusalem, I think, is one of the easiest uh, problems to solve. There is no problem in Jerusalem if you give up exclusivity. The problem with Jerusalem is when one side says, this is mine and mine alone. And I set the rules and I allow or don't allow access or worship or building or structures in that country. Uh, once you accept the principle that Jerusalem is shared by both parties, then, then that becomes a very easy, manageable, pragmatic uh, problem. Religious places are already fixed by a status quo agreement that's been there for for literally for decades, if not centuries. Uh, and, 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 and that takes care of the religious places. Who has a capital? Who can raise the flag? What educational system goes on? What is planning? All these things can be pragmatically uh, addressed 
once you give up the idea of exclusivity. The well, only then, problem with Jerusalem is when, when, when one group or one religion claims that it is ours alone and all the infidels <laughs> should be kept out or suppressed or uh, otherwise uh, subjugated. Well, let me ask you then, Jonathan, what, what do you do about the, the settlements, the illegal settlements in the West Bank? Do you just accept them? You do with them what you do with Israel itself. Almost every Jew in, in, in Palestine, Israel today is living either in an Arab house or on Arab land. My solution is you don't move them out. In, you allow them to stay where they are. Instead, you provide alternative housing or compensation for the original owners. You don't uproot anybody, but you do provide legitimate, genuine uh, alternatives and compensation to house and to address uh, those whose property you are living on or those whose houses you are sitting in. You know, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, was avowedly opposed to two-state solution, as you said, worked assiduously to prevent that from ever happening. Uh, his successor, Naftali Bennett, is very much a significant supporter of the settlement movement, of the colonization, if you will, of, of the West Bank. I mean, how can you uh, work with someone like Naftali Bennett? The same way you could work with uh, Netanyahu or Bennett or Hamas or anybody on both sides. Uh, my contention is that these two movements, you know, let's not kid ourselves, are mutually exclusive. If Israel is to be as Jewish as France is French, or if it is Palestine, Arabia, Palestine is Arab, then every single acre of land, every single baby that is born, an individual who lives there, is done at the expense of the other group. It's a mutually exclusive equation. I'm trying to change that. I'm saying, can we think of a solution that serves both, but not at the expense of each other? I also think that you can somehow enrich uh, life, both for Israeli Jews and for Palestinian Arabs, if you stop being exclusive. It, it's, it's, it's a radical concept, and it requires a, an ideological shift in how you think about the situation. But, but I, I, I firmly believe that it will produce a better result for both sides than the current ideologies have provided them. What about the, uh, the so-called Abraham Accords? Do you think they're a help or are they a hindrance? To oh, they're clearly a hindrance. They are, they are just an attempt to say that Israel can make deals with uh, Arab countries and Arab dictators that bypass totally the Palestinian question. That, that's not a help. That's not a help. Uh, one of the biggest problems in, in, in the current situation is the imbalance of power between Israelis and Palestinians. And the Abrahamic uh, Accords only reinforce uh, that domination of Israel by saying, even the Arabs are willing to make peace with me. You don't, we don't need the Palestinians. We don't need justice. 
We don't need to provide a solution. We'll just settle matters through uh, a few multi-billion dollar arms deals uh, that satisfy uh, the Arab dictators at the expense of the Palestinians. Well, all right. So the Abraham Accords are, are a hindrance. Uh, you have to establish a kind of a common ground, don't you? Where oh, yes. people are prepared to drop their exclusivity. How, how, who do you approach? How do you achieve that? Well, well, there's two ways you can do that. Uh, you, you can, the, the usual way is to try and convince people that for the sake of their children, their grandchildren, for the sake of ending the struggle, for the sake of morality, for the sake of international law, for the sake of stability, you need peace. Uh, that's not usually very persuasive. Most people don't give up their privilege unless they have to, unless internal or external forces oblige them to give up their privilege. This is what happened with apartheid in South Africa, with slavery, with uh, granting women uh, the right to vote. It's not something that's done only by persuasion and by the movement, the inevitable movement of history uh, towards something that is more uh, sustainable and more just. It is something where, you know, people have to be forced, coerced, hopefully through nonviolent uh, means rather than through violent uh, war and structures to give up their, 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 their privilege. This is what happened with slavery. You can't persuade the slave owners that it's better to give up slavery or the colonizers that it's better to give up uh, their colonies and their imperialism and their rule over other people. There has to be a struggle and there has to be change internal and external that forces them uh, to see uh, a better way forward. And this struggle, who, who do you see being engaged in it? I mean, who, who are your fellow um, uh, fighters for the cause? I think everybody needs to be engaged. I think people who, who, who care about justice, people who care about international law, people who care about Jews and Arabs and a better future need to be engaged in this fight. We can't leave it to the political leaders who are short-sighted and, 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 and selfish almost by definition, uh, who are always seeking uh, the, their own interests. Yeah, there have to be people engaged in this struggle who care. Uh, and, 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 and I think you will find them in Israel, among Israelis, among Palestinians, uh, and among uh, internationals as well, who care about Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs. Well, you, you, you mentioned politicians and, and, and not putting too much expectation on them, I suppose. Uh, President Trump greatly advanced the settlement project and he did substantial harm to the Palestinian cause. What do you think President Biden needs to do? Does he need to restore the sense of balance? Well, unfortunately, I don't have much expectations. The most that, that, that Biden has promised or we think can do is go back to what was before uh, Trump came. But what was before Trump came was not that good. It was supportive of a very oppressive 
uh, imbalanced, uneven, unjust policy uh, that, that does not provide any uh, security or any long-term uh, justice, certainly for, for either side. Uh, which is why I don't think it's a matter of just personalities of politicians. We need a radical basic change uh, because I suspect when that change comes uh, and, and, and it will come and it will come, uh, I think it will come regardless of who's in the White House uh, at the time. Mm. You know, um, I'm speaking to you from, from London and the UK, uh, of course, has, I would say, a historical responsibility it, uh, because of the Balfour Declaration, uh, one that you might agree they Britain walked away from, but do you think there is a role now for the UK to play to move forward your concept? Uh, absolutely, there is a role for the UK, apart from its uh, historic, I would say, guilt and obligation, but, but also as part of the current world. To this day, the UK has not recognized the state of Palestine, for example. If they want a two-state solution, why don't they recognize the state of Palestine? Now, why don't they use uh, their leverage with Israel uh, to uh, push towards a more just solution? I mean, if they believe in the two-state solution, never mind my ideas, what are they doing about settlements? What are they doing about preventing Israel uh, from getting all the benefits of, 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 of pretending to be a European and a democratic uh, Western country, when in fact it is not, and yet it's getting away with it. Uh, start treating them as they are. They are an apartheid regime that privileges Jews at the expense of non-Jews. Uh, and that is not a good thing. That is not a good thing, regardless of what happened in the past and their previous victimization. Uh, under the occupation and, and within Israel itself, the Palestinian people have paid a very heavy price uh, for their part. Organizations like Hamas and Islamic Jihad have met violence with violence. What sort of accountability does there need to be? I mean, do you see a kind of peace and reconciliation mechanism here? Yes, I do. But, 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 but before we go too far down that path, uh, I would like to point that most Israelis and Palestinians, I think, unlike myself, still believe in violence and an army and in armed resistance and in the power of weapons. So you can't just preach nonviolence to the Palestinians, which I do, by the way, <laughs> which I do because I think it is effective and a much better way forward. But you can't just ask Palestinians, why are you being violent and resisting this oppression without telling Israelis at the same time, why are you so violent, so disproportionately violent? Why would you think that violence itself, mere weapons are going to achieve your purposes? Hasn't it been proven? that with overwhelming military force on your side, you still have failed uh, to achieve your uh, objectives. You're still left with about 7 million non-Jews within your borders. How can you be a Jewish state with half the people living under your rule uh, being non-Jewish, whether they're citizens or not? Just like I have to tell myself, how can Palestine be 
fully Arab when 7 million of the people living in Palestine, more or less, are not Arab. I must come to terms with that reality that Palestine today, historic Palestine, is both Jewish and Arab. And these two people, regardless, and I'm not pretending that there is any equivalency or symmetry between them. Uh, regardless, they need to find a way to live together in respect, in dignity, in equality, in security, and live and thrive together. And they can only do that once they drop this crazy idea of exclusivity and excluding the other. But just to come back to my point about truth and reconciliation, because people have suffered enormous harm, enormous damage. Do they not get any accountability or do they simply put that aside, set it aside, move forward? Well, you are putting the cart before the horse because truth and reconciliation comes at the end. We are still living under the oppression. The, the, the knee is still on our neck. So before you say about accountability, just get that knee off my neck, please. And then we'll talk about truth and reconciliation and moving forward uh, together. Yes, of course, we do need that. Uh, but, but right now we need to just end the occupation. We need to get that knee off our neck, that boot off our back. Jonathan, you are a person hugely optimistic. I think, is that optimism shared when you talk to fellow Palestinians? Do they say to you, yes, I can see your vision. I can share it. We can see it happening because as you know, the obstacles are enormous. The power structure alone, the IDF, all of the, 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 the walls, the security wall itself speaks so much against what you would like to see happen and what many, many people on both sides would like to see happen, I dare say. I don't know that it's so much optimism as it is hope. It is an understanding of history. Uh, and uh, if, if you're at all a believer, a uh, faith in God, uh, the ultimate sovereign, that this kind of oppression cannot persist forever that sooner or later, fate, history, God, the, the movement of, of, of the realistic movement forward requires an end to this kind of oppression. You know, I, I, I tell people who tell me it's, 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 it's hopeless. And I say, yeah, look at apartheid South Africa. That looked hopeless too. Look at the slavery in the United States. I mean, I, 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 do I need to remind you that 100 years ago, Women didn't even have the vote. That's just a hundred years ago. And, and yet look at LGBT. Uh, a decade or two decades ago, that was totally unthinkable. Today it's, it's understood and accepted that, that you know, equality is, 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 a, uh, is a basic value, even though there are those who do not accept it. You know, that is certainly the direction and the movement of history people can and will be free. Mm. And that, and that uh, knee on the neck, that boot in the back, how do you get the Israelis to lift that? That's, that's, that's a tall order. 
that is a tall order, particularly if the Israelis are afraid that the minute they move that, 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 that knee, uh, bad things will happen. <laughs> so uh, we, we have to deal with, 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 with that reality and with that psychological obstacle, uh, as well as with uh, tremendous power imbalance. Uh, I, in the book, I mentioned that any peace uh, in, in, uh, in the Middle East, two state, one state, no state, uh, requires that you deal with these two factors, the tremendous power imbalance and what I call the Holocaust syndrome uh, that, that has convinced many Israelis that overwhelming military power is the only path uh, to security. Now we need to deal with that. That's, that's, that's a, uh, uh, I think, a malady that needs to be cured and healed. Recognize for what it is, Recognize that many politicians are using it as an excuse rather than really believing it, but it's still a real thing. I, I know for most Palestinians, most Arabs, it's laughable every time they hear Israel talk about security. What do you mean security? You have nuclear weapons. You have total and full control. You have F-16s. You have the support of the only superpower in the world. What are you talking about security? We're the ones who need security. And yet I recognize that at some deep level, that there is that fear and there is that uh, Holocaust syndrome that, that needs to be addressed. Jonathan, hope is a very important element and, uh, and it's very refreshing to hear hope coming from you in a, in a conflict that seems utterly intractable. So uh, I thank you so much for, for talking to me today. You're welcome. I hope you've enjoyed this week's Arab Digest podcast, and thanks for listening. My guest today was Jonathan Kutab. His book, Beyond the Two-State Solution, is available at nonviolenceinternational.net. And Jonathan will be speaking Thursday on 28th of October about the book. For details, go to balfourproject.org forward slash future events. Arab Digest publishes a newsletter featuring some of the very best MENA analysts. If you'd like a free trial to the newsletter, simply go to ArabDigest.org. And if you enjoy what you find and want to join the club after your trial period has ended, we're offering special rates to students, academics, and retirees. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check it out on ArabDigest.org. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.